This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Learn more about how we can help you with fleet recall management and maintenance updates, as well as capture vehicle history and VIN data. Give VinSmart a call at 1-888-950-9550 or visit us on the web at vinsmart.com slash businesses. Welcome to AnvaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Anva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the AnvaCast. This week, we are tackling the topic of driver license foreign reciprocity, what those words mean, how it works, and a new helpful product that Anva hopes to have in your hands soon. Joining me this week for the discussion, I'm pleased to welcome two individuals who work on our new product. First, Rebecca Plop. Rebecca is from Service Alberta, and she was the chair of our working group. And she will also be joined by Jesse Ross. Jesse is part of the AMVA team and was one of our lead staffers on this working group and is lead on all things foreign reciprocity. Uh, Rebecca, Jesse, welcome to what I believe is both of your first appearances on the AMVACast. Thank you, Ian. It sure is. It certainly is. Great. Well, we're excited to have you. Let's jump into it. Foreign reciprocity may or may not mean anything to anybody. Rebecca, define it for us at a high level. We have listeners of this podcast from all walks of life in the community, outside the community, friends and family who I forced to listen to me. Tell them what foreign reciprocity is. Sure. Uh, So in this context, when we're talking about driver's license foreign reciprocity, we are talking about enabling members of two countries to exchange their driving credential with minimal or no testing requirements. So what does that look like in practice? Somebody from another country wants to come in and just as, you know, when I moved to Maryland from Vermont, I gave them my Vermont license and Maryland gave me a Maryland license. That simple coming from another country? That simple. Yeah. If that country has an agreement with your jurisdiction, it means that when you move there and you have to go through the process of changing over your license, you can walk in. You're going to provide certain documentation like your identity, residency, you know, all those eligibility pieces, but you're just going to be able to exchange your license without having to complete any additional testing or requirements. When you talk about coming from another country, Jesse, maybe you can explain this. Even though someone might be coming from another country, Rebecca, I think very smartly said it depends on the agreement with that jurisdiction. So it's not necessarily from another country into the U.S. or Canada, but it has to do more individually by the jurisdiction, whether it's a specific state or an individual province in Canada. Can you explain that a little bit more? Yeah, so um, Rebecca is exactly right. It really does vary um, depending on jurisdiction. The idea of the best practices for foreign reciprocity is to attempt to develop some sort of uniformity among that with the understanding that every jurisdiction will have different laws and agreements that do vary. So that was one of the things that we did attempt to tackle. And and I think that we did a great job at doing that and displaying those different variances with the understanding that every jurisdiction is different. And again, that just is based on state and local laws and how that state chooses to implement. But I guess that's what I want one of you to explain for those that are listening that aren't as familiar with driver licensing. Uh, If I am coming from Germany or I'm coming from the United Kingdom to live in the United States or Canada, uh, why does it matter which state or which province in Canada I go to? Can it just be I'm coming from the country of United Kingdom and now I'm coming to the country of Canada and I want to exchange the license? 
it's not that simple. Can you explain why? In the sense that we can't make that decision at a national level in either the U.S. or Canada. Correct. And that, and, and I'll take the first stab at that question. Um, so it is because regular drivers or non-commercial, each jurisdiction does have different laws which are determined at the jurisdictional level. So unfortunately, there is not one national rule where, you know, you can come from country A over to country B and it's honored regardless of what jurisdiction you're in. So that's kind of how it works for regular drivers or non-commercial. They um, That uniformity is determined at the jurisdictional level which is why we created the guide to help try to help if a state is establishing a program or already has one that is established to kind of create that uniformity. And so before we get into the details of the guide, which, which we will, so that means in practicality that each state or each province in Canada has to have an individual agreement with each individual country. So if, I'm, if I look at it from the foreign perspective, if you will, if I am I'll go back to my example of the United Kingdom. If I want to have reciprocity, I need to create 69 different agreements across the U.S. and Canada. If I wanted full reciprocity across all the U.S. states, territories, Canadian provinces and territories, they may not want all 69, of course, but nevertheless, it's still more than four. Mm -hmm. So have you seen that as you're doing the research, as the working group did the research, did you discover that there are some countries more than others that have, I guess, dozens, right? Maybe three or four dozen different agreements when they think about all the different states and provinces they want to have that reciprocity with. Yeah, I can speak to that. So one of the things that you'll see in this guide is an updated survey and some survey results. And we really tried to answer those questions. So we, you know, what will you want to know if you're entering into an agreement? And that was one of the questions we asked is, okay, I'm being approached by the United Kingdom. How many agreements do they already have in place with other Canadian or U.S. jurisdictions? So for that, we were able to get like even a really quick graphical representation where you can see that some jurisdictions have up to 22 agreements in place right now. You know, so a few jurisdictions really stood out. The majority are under five. But there's some jurisdictions that have really clearly been approaching as many provinces and states as they can. And they're successfully getting these agreements in place. I guess the, the question I should have asked sooner is why? Why would a jurisdiction want to have these agreements in place? We'll get into, you know, I know that the best practices guide that we'll get to talks about operationalizing and how to make it work effectively. Why would a U.S. state or a Canadian province even want to have an agreement with a foreign country to just swap a driver's license without testing that, that driver? What's the incentive there? I think it's all about, you know, having that reciprocity and and ultimately making things easier for the customer. And some of those benefits include, you know, if you have a country that has similar standards or rules, being able to honor those and accept them and recognize, um, because ultimately that will benefit the customer. There's a lot of customer service benefits, obviously, for the DMV and doing that and recognizing those universally. But ultimately, that does help the customer as well. So they're not repeating tests and, and things like that, where they can just come in if you have a country that has similar standards to your own. So how do you go about figuring out whether they have similar standards or not? Great, Great question. question. <laughs> <laughs> the one you've been waiting for. Yeah. Yes. So that's definitely a part of the process and the best practice guide that we are um, hoping to publish very soon. And I think it's the, really the most important piece of this. You know, you can have the legislation in place, you can have the the intent, the desire to create this agreement, but really importantly, you want to do that program comparison. So we actually provide a tool, a program comparison checklist, 
and a list of things you're going to take a look at. You want to look at their knowledge testing, their road testing, you know, down to the detail of what questions are they asking, what skills and competencies are they testing. You want to know, you know, what does it even take to become a driver examiner? So you're going to go through their program in detail and compare it to yours. And that's the most important piece. You're saying, is this similar enough that we feel comfortable exchanging that driving credential without additional testing? Because it really does come down to the safety of your drivers and your roadways. And you want to be comfortable that when you're giving that credential, that that person is safe to operate on your roadways. So that program compares to me about a massive checklist and, you know, you even things you may not think of, like what's the political climate, you know, how open is that country to fraud or, you know, buying a fake driving credential or the ability to authenticate that driving license and their security feature. So it's really quite complex. Um, and I would argue absolutely the most important part of the process. So that, that's interesting. I, th I think when most people hear you talk about comparing programs, the natural places to think about what is their knowledge to ask for? What type of skills test do they put them out on the road for? Do they go through that same vetting process? Do they have a graduated driver's licensing process? That, that's a comparable, is this driver safe to operate a vehicle? When you add in that fraud piece, uh, the security of a, another agency's program, why, why is that in there? If I'm trying to compare, is this individual able to operate? What's the reason for making sure that the environment that that license is coming from is a comparable environment. What is that? What does that give the agency on the other end an assurance of? I think it's that comfortability and that confidence that that person obtained that driving credential legitimately. Okay. That's really what it comes down to. We want to know, and you know, even what identity documents do they have to present to apply for that driver's license? And again, the security features of the license itself, so that we know that it's not easily altered or forged and that we can be comfortable again when it comes down to that front counter exchange once the agreement's in place that the license we are exchanging and is being handed over is legitimate. Yeah, but to be clear, even you're you're looking at the identity vetting on the other side to make sure that credential is legitimate, you're not giving reciprocity of the identification vetting. So when I'm a US or Canadian jurisdiction that's issuing our driver's license for that foreign one, I'm still going to put that individual through the same identity vetting process that I would a new applicant. It's just the driving skills portion that's receiving the reciprocity. Is that, is that an accurate description? That is correct. Correct. So when we talk foreign reciprocity, even though we might be comparing uh, driver license production, identity vetting for the legitimacy of the credential, the actual reciprocity is only related to the, I guess, the knowledge and skills test, essentially. Correct. Okay. Very, very interesting. So when we talked about why, you know, someone would want to have one, one of these programs, did the working group discover, are U.S. and Canadian members more the recipient of these requests? Are we the seekers of these requests overseas? Is it equal? Are there any trends in that direction? For the most part, we are the recipients of the request from the foreign country. However, with that understanding and understanding that traditionally it has been that way, we looked at it from like a holistic picture and let's look to the future. And so we actually accounted for that in the guide for if a jurisdiction here would like to request reciprocity with a foreign country, we've accounted for that process as well in the guide. 
So traditionally, like I said, that's not been the approach, but we have accounted for that. And we also have some model templates for a jurisdiction to use if they should choose to request reciprocity. Model templates on how to communicate. What, what are some of the other templates they might find in the guide? Rebecca, jump in because I know we have tons of them. We have like a letter of intent. So if a foreign country were to, um, if you were to enter into reciprocity with that country, that we have the letter of intent. We have the request for reciprocity that I just mentioned, the model MOU or the memorandum of understanding that document as well. We have several different documents that you can just meet and tailor to the needs of your jurisdiction, depending on your program. The cool thing about our guide is that, um, you know, anyone who grabs it can read it and understand it. We wanted it to be digestible regardless of the level of, uh, you know, whether you're a frontline worker or a chief administrator. We wanted you to be able to grab the guide, read it, understand it, and apply it. So, um, you know, regardless of where you are with your program, and maybe your state doesn't have a program at this time, um, you know, you're able to jump in and read this document and, and hopefully apply it in your jurisdiction. You mentioned the MOU. Uh is that the legal mechanism, if you will, that most jurisdictions use to solidify the reciprocity agreement? Is that the the vehicle that is preferred for, you know, commemorating that there's reciprocity between the two countries? Or is there something more legal, more formal, you know, for lack of a better word? This is one of the questions we asked in our survey. We wanted to know what term do people use for their agreements? Um, and, you know, majority Actually, we had a lot of different responses, so it seems to really vary across the jurisdictions. And again, I think that comes down to sometimes what their um, enabling legislation may say. Um, but we had a lot of people use the term agreement, arrangement. Um, some people even said informal agreements or informal arrangements um, and MOU. But I would say the most common were MOU and agreement. And that's what we decided as a group with the working group members that we had. We did spend some time on that. You know, what should we call it? What it, what would be universally accepted and recognized? And MOU is where we landed. And I do want to add also, we do have model legislation as well. So understanding that the MOU is what's used for the actual agreement. We do have model legislation also included in here. So should your state enter into some sort of reciprocity, we do have that model legislation for you to use as well. Do we find that legislation is needed per agreement or is it more legislation is needed to the authority and then an agency can enter into many individual agreements as they need to? Where's usually the, the use for the model legislation? It really just depends on where your authority lies, um, whether that is at the top level, you know, your governor or your administrator. It, it, it just depends on who makes that decision. And if you have broad language, that would be um, for any jurisdiction or if it's handled on a case-by-case -case basis. And correct me if I'm wrong, Becky, but um, we had a wide range on that, on the spectrum of, you know, who makes that determination and, and is it in law or is it in an MOU or an agreement? It really just varies by, by jurisdiction. Yeah. When we surveyed the jurisdictions and we asked for samples of their legislation, some had really broad, open and enabling legislation where you could enter into an agreement with any jurisdiction. Some had a little bit more um, you know, specific terms in there. And then others had legislation that just said they can't enter into an agreement. So it was really interesting when we looked at it. And for most jurisdictions that don't have agreements in place, that was the reason that they didn't, is that they either did not have the legislation or their legislation said, no, you can't enter into an agreement. So I believe our model legislation is more on the open-ended, uh, broad. That was sort of our recommended best practice, because then you're not going to have to go back and make changes to your legislation every time you want to enter into an additional agreement. 
Now, when this working group started its work, um, there was, and it is still out there, an older version of what's called the Foreign Reciprocity Resource Guide. And now this new document is a Foreign Reciprocity's Best Practice. How would you summarize the difference between those that remember the old resource guide and what is soon going to be available to them now? What might be the highlights that, that would say, this is what this does that the old one didn't, or this is where we've made some significant updates? So we started by going through the old guide. We went through it page by page, line by line, and we said, you know, what is still relevant? What's really important information? And the actual first thing we did was really clarify the scope and the intent of the document. So the previous version, while it was about foreign reciprocity, it also talked about visitors who don't meet the eligibility requirements to apply for a license. And it talked about them continuing to operate on their home jurisdiction license in your province or state. So we said, this doesn't make sense in this context. So we removed all that. We also focused on foreign reciprocity outside of Canada, U.S. So we sort of removed that as well and focused outside of our home provinces and states. So we really felt that helped. It was sort of the first thing we did. We clarified that scope. And then the next piece that I would say is different and we're really excited about is all the templates that we have. As we started adding in these templates all throughout the guide and really going from that start to end process that Jesse mentioned, you know, the high legislation and coming into those agreements all the way down to the frontline service delivery portion once that agreement's in place, we provided templates all the way through. So everybody who's interacting with this agreement or once it's operationalized have something that's available to them and last thing we did was that updated survey and you know well ANVA surveys are not anything new we were really excited about this one because what we did is we asked the general ANVA survey asked people some open-ended questions about whether or not they have agreements about their legislation but then we took it a step further to those jurisdictions that had an agreement in place we then asked them for an additional survey response where they detailed the same questions about every agreement they had. And what that did is from having, I think it was 26 jurisdictions said they did have agreements in place. So from those 26 jurisdictions, we ended up with detailed information on over 100 agreements. Wow. And that gave us the ability to do some trend analysis, put in some of those quick graphic representations that we think will answer the questions people are looking for and be a really great guide. So if someone is approaching you wanting to enter into an agreement, we have the ability to take a look at that information, ask questions, and then learn from those jurisdictions. So, you know, if somebody approached me and Kansas was the only place that had an agreement, I would reach out to somebody there and say, okay, tell me what you learned. And so I think that's what we're really excited about and what you'll see in this new version. One of the pieces you mentioned there in terms of refining the scope, you separated out the issue of any reciprocity between U.S. and Canada. Why is that? Why, why was that treated separately and not part of a general view of foreign reciprocity? Because at the end, even though certainly all of U.S. and all of Canada are AMVA members, we all know they're still two separate sovereign countries. Yeah, a couple of reasons. One, we didn't find it was the ask that people were really looking for information on. There's a lot of those agreements already in place. And a lot of those agreements aren't necessarily formal agreements. <laughs> um, Between, say, a U.S. state and a Canadian province. Yeah. So, you know, for example, in Alberta, we reciprocate any U.S. license and we sort of have a policy and program based on that, as opposed to having individual agreements with individual states. So when we looked at the guide and what we felt people were really looking for and to keep it focused and, you know, readable and understandable for everyone, that was just the decision we landed on as this working group and for the best practice guide. 
Because I guess ultimately that's true in any – your example of Alberta and making the policy to exchange a U.S. license, uh, any state or province could ultimately make that decision unilaterally because you have the full authority to give your license to whomever you choose you want to give your license to. You don't necessarily have to have this formal agreement and formal vetting with any other entity because you have the authority as an agency or through legislature power to issue your driving credential. I think it gets back to where the working group landed, which is best practice outside of the existing U.S.-Canadian reciprocity, which has become more mainstream over the past decades. When interacting with another foreign issuing agency, this might be the best way to go about that procedure. So what, what else is in the new guide that we haven't talked about? Any, anything in the new guide that you really want to highlight for them? One of the things, and, and we have touched on it a little bit, but, um, you know, just again, I'll say that even if you're listening to this podcast and you're not sure if you even have a foreign reciprocity agreement, you know, it's, it's good to start that digging and, and to do that investigation work. We've accounted for all of that in this guide. Like I said, you can pick it up at any time and, you know, be able to, to build a program. Another thing that I'm excited for, I know that the program checklist arguably is the most important piece of this. Another thing that's also exciting and new is the standard operating procedures. So once you've decided that you want to have a foreign reciprocity program, where do you go from there? And so in this um, section within the guide, we have, you know, a purpose and scope, legal authority, the policy statements and responsibilities of those individuals that are tasked with handling foreign reciprocity. So we've even went to that level where we've said, okay, you have these set of individuals in your program that handle this type of work. Here's some of their typical responsibilities. And here's a contact person. We want to build contact lists so that we can call, you know, Kansas or whoever and find out what do you do in this situation? So we're really trying to build this from the ground up. We know that foreign reciprocity has been around for a long time. What we're wanting to do is beef it up and, and look to the future and make this program more uniform and, and just great all around. Yeah. And I'll add to that, Jesse, you know, if you're someone who already has agreements in place and you're thinking we don't need this guide, you know, I'd encourage you to, to, to take a read, take a look, take a look at your existing agreements and maybe there's areas to improve. Um, or to implement some of these, you know, operational procedures, ways to verify the license that's being surrendered. There's a lot of really useful tips and tools, even if you already have these agreements in place. And it might be a good starting point to go back and look at some of those agreements, because we also found, you know, in asking the survey question, some people didn't even have the agreements and copies of it anymore because they were established so long ago, they don't know when. We don't have contact information. So it's just a good opportunity for anyone whether you already have agreements in place, you're in the process, or you're thinking about establishing new agreements to take a read. So really appreciate this conversation about foreign reciprocity and the, and the new document. Don't know if either of you are regular listeners of the AmbiCast, but certainly those that are regular listeners know I always like to spend a few minutes getting to know our guests a little bit more, especially since it's your first appearance. Rebecca, when I introduced you, you know, I mentioned that you're from Service Alberta. Uh, it, obviously, you clearly spent a lot of time sharing our working group, which we really appreciate, but we know you must have a day job at Service Alberta. Tell us, what is your primary role there? Sure. I am a team lead of motor vehicles here with Service Alberta. So I think some of your listeners will know Alberta is a little bit unique. We have a completely privatized service delivery model for registry services with over 220 privatized businesses delivering services on behalf of the government of Alberta. And then we actually have joint authority between two ministries on how we do the governance of motor vehicle services. So 
my role with Service Alberta is all about that service delivery component. So monitoring program delivery, working with our registry agents, and yeah, just sort of managing the program for the province. So it's a lot of oversight of those private entities that are actually interacting with the customers, both on the vehicle registration and license plates, as well as the driver's license and identification cards. Yep. And just, you know, working on the policies and program development as we look to, you know, modernize registry services or make changes to our program. That's sort of where where I sit and what I do. And how long have you been with Service Alberta? It will be 10 years in September. And prior to that, I did work at a registry office on that front counter service delivery. So I've got that experience. I did that for about five years. Wow, that's that's fascinating that you were you spent time with that private partner delivering to the customer before being the wizard behind the curtain, as we like to say. Yep. And you're you're a native of Alberta? Born and raised. And and Jesse, how about you? You've been with Anva now for how many years? It will be five years in March, so I'm looking ahead. Very excited to be with Anva. Every day is a new adventure. And in addition to the foreign reciprocity, um, I also handle all things compact related, driver's license compact, which is interesting to see how these things kind of tie in together when we talk about reciprocity and uniformity and those sorts of things. And you also came to us. You also came to us at Anva, not, not dissimilar from Rebecca having worked on both sides. You were with the jurisdiction agency before joining AMBA. So, yes, I was with uh, the Kansas DMV for just short of 10 years. I was a driver services manager there, dealt with these kinds of things as well, all things driving related, in fact. So it's definitely like coming home, being at AMBA and just kind of doing what I already do and still getting to work with the folks that I worked with before, just on a different level. Well, I want to thank you both for being here today and spending time with us. I think it's safe we can go ahead and share with our listeners that be on the lookout sometime this summer for that new document to be published on the on the website and available for download. Rebecca, I want to thank you and all the members of the working group for all the great work that you did in putting this together. Uh, Jesse, you supporting them from the AMVA team. And I think we also should give a little shout out to uh, Denise Hanchelek, who is another team member at AMVA who did a, a lot of heavy lifting behind the scenes with Jesse to make this meet the finish line. So with that, I want to thank both of you. I want to thank all of our listeners for listening in this week. We'll see you back here next week on the AmbaCast. Thanks to our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. Stay well, everyone. See you next week. Thank you for joining us for AmbaCast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey, music by Gibson Arthur. This episode is brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at ambacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.